Chapter 42 of The Humbugs of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Yuan G. The Humbugs of the World by P.T. Barnum. Adventurers. Chapter 42 The Count de Saint Germain. Sage, Prophet, and Magician. Superior to Cagliostro, even in accomplishments, and second to him in notoriety only, was that human nondescript, the so-called Count de Saint-Germain, whom Frederick the Great called a man no one has ever been able to make out. The Marquis de Grégoire declares that Saint-Germain was an Alsatian Jew, Simon Wolfe by name, and born at Strasbourg about the close of the 17th or beginning of the 18th century. Others insist that he was a Spanish Jesuit named Amar, and others again intimate that his true title was the Marquis de Betmar, and that he was a native of Portugal. The most plausible theory, however, makes him the natural son of an Italian princess, and fixes his birth at San Germano in Savoy about the year 1710, his ostensible father being one Rotondo, a tax collector of that district. This supposition is borne out by the fact that he spoke all his many languages with an Italian accent. It was about the year 1750 that he first began to be heard of in Europe as the Count Saint-Germain, and put forth the astounding pretensions that soon gave him celebrity over the whole continent. The celebrated Marquis de Belleisle made his acquaintance about that time in Germany, and brought him to Paris, where he was introduced to Madame de Pompadour, whose favour he very quickly gained. The influence of that famous beauty was just then paramount with Louis XV, and the Count was soon one of the most eminent men at court. He was remarkably handsome, as an old portrait at Friesdorf in Saxony in the rooms he once occupied sufficiently indicated, and his musical accomplishments added to the ineffable charm of his manners and conversation, and the miracles he performed rendered him an irresistible attraction, especially to the ladies, who appeared to have almost idolized him. Endowed with an enchanting voice, he could also play every instrument then in vogue, but especially excelled upon the violin, which he could handle in such a manner as to give it the effect of a small orchestra. Contemporary writers declare that, in his more ordinary performances, a connoisseur could distinctly hear the separate tones of a full quartet when the Count was extemporizing on his favorite Cremona. His little work entitled La Musique Raisonnée, published in England for private circulation only, bears testimony to his musical genius, and to the wondrous eccentricity as well as beauty of his conceptions. But it was in electromancy, or divination by signs and circles, hydromancy, or divination by water, clydomancy, or divination by the key, and dactylomancy, or divination by the fingers, that the Count chiefly excelled, although he, at the same time, professed alchemy, astrology, and prophecy in the higher branches. The fortunes of the Count Saint-Germain rose so rapidly in France that in 1760 he was sent by Louis XV to the court of England to assist in negotiations for a peace. Monsieur de Chaussel, then Prime Minister of France, however, greatly feared and detested the Count, and secretly wrote to Pitt, begging the latter to have that personage arrested, as he was certainly a Russian spy. But Saint-Germain, through his attendant sprites, of course, received timely warning and escaped to the continent. In England, 
He was the inseparable friend of Prince Lobkowitz, a circumstance that gave some colour to his alleged connection with the Russians. His sojourn there was equally distinguished by his devotion to the ladies, and his unwavering success at the gambling table, where he won fabulous sums, which were afterward dispensed with imperial munificence. It was there, too, that he put forward his claims to the highest rank in masonry, and of course added thereby immensely to the éclat of his position. He spoke English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, German, Russian, Polish, the Scandinavian, and many of the Oriental tongues with equal fluency, and pretended to have travelled over the whole earth, and even to have visited the most distant starry orbs frequently, in the course of a lifetime which, with continual transmigrations, he declared to have lasted for thousands of years. His birth, he said, had been in Chaldea, in the dawn of time, and that he was the sole inheritor of the lost sciences and mysteries of his own and the Egyptian race. He spoke of his personal intimacy with all the twelve apostles, and even the august presence of the Saviour, and one of his pretensions would have been most singularly amusing, had it not bordered upon profanity. This was no less an assertion that he had upon several occasions remonstrated with the apostle Peter upon the irritability of his temperament. In regard to latter periods of history, he spoke with the careless ease of an everyday looker-on, and told anecdotes that the researches of scholars afterwards fully verified. His predictions were indeed most startling, and the contemporaneous evidence is very strong and explicit that he did foretell the time, place, and manner of the death of Louis the Fifteenth several years before it occurred. His gift of memory was perfectly amazing. Having once read a journal of the day, he could repeat its contents accurately from beginning to end, and to this endowment he united the faculty of writing with both hands, in characters like copperplate. Thus he could indite a love letter with his right, while he composed a verse with his left hand, and apparently with the utmost facility, a splendid acquisition for the treasury department or literary newspaper. He would, however, have been ineligible for any faithful post office, since he read the contents of sealed letters at a glance, and by his clairvoyant powers, detected crime, or in fact the movements of men and the phenomena of nature, at any distance. Like all the great Magi, and brothers of the Rosy Cross, of whom he claimed to be a shining light, he most excelled in medicine, and along with remedies for every ill that flesh is heir to, boasted his Aqua Benedetta as the genuine elixir of life, capable of restoring youth to age, beauty and strength to decay, and brilliant intellect to the exhausted brain, and if properly applied, protracting human existence through countless centuries. As a proof of its virtues, he pointed to his own youthful appearance, and the testimony of old men who had seen him sixty or seventy years earlier, and who declared that time had made no impression on him. Strangely enough, the Margrave of Ansbach, of whom I shall presently speak, purchased what purported to be the recipe of the Aqua Benedetta from John Dyke, the English consul at Legon, towards the close of the last century, and copies of it are still preserved with religious care and the utmost secrecy by certain noble families in Berlin and Vienna, where the preparation has been used, as they believe, with perfect success against a host of diseases. Still another peculiarity of the Count would be highly advantageous to any of us, 
particularly at this period of high prices and culinary scarcity. He never ate nor drank, or at least he was never seen to do so. It is said that boarding house regime in these days is rapidly accustoming a considerable class of our fellow citizens to a similar condition, but I can scarcely believe it. Again, the Count would fall into cataleptic swoons, which continued often for hours and even days, and during these periods he declared that he visited, in spirit, the most remote regions of the earth, and even the farthest stars, and would relate with astonishing power the scenes he there had witnessed. He, of course, laid claim to the transmutation of baser metals into gold, and stated that, in 1755, while on a visit to India, to consult the erudition of the Hindu Brahmins, he solved by their assistance the problem of the artificial crystallization of pure carbon, or, in other words, the production of diamonds. One thing is certain, viz. that upon a visit to the French ambassador to The Hague in 1780, he, in the presence of that functionary, induced him to believe and testify that he broke to pieces with a hammer a superb diamond of his own manufacture, the exact counterpart of another of similar origin which he had just sold for 5,500 Louis d'Or. His career and transformations on the continent were multiform. In 1762 he was mixed up with the dynastic conspiracies and changes at St. Petersburg and his importance there was indicated ten years later by the reception given to him at Vienna by the Russian Count Olof, who accosted him joyously as Karo Padre, dear father, and gave him 20,000 golden Venetian sequins. From Petersburg he went to Berlin, where he at once attracted the attention of Frederick the Great, who questioned Voltaire about him. The latter replying, as it is said, that he was a man who knew all things and would live to the end of the world. A fair statement, in brief, of the position assumed by more than one of our ward politicians. In 1774, he took up his abode at Schwabach, in Germany, under the name of Count Sarogi, which is a transposition of Ragozzi, a well-known noble name. The Margrave of Ansbach met him at the house of his favourite Laurent, the actress, and became so fond of him that he insisted upon his company to Italy. On his return he went to Dresden, Leipzig and Hamburg, and finally to Eckenfjord in Schleswig, where he took up his residence with the Landgrave Karl of Hesse, and at length in 1783, tired, as he said, of life, and disdained any long immortality, he gave up the ghost. It was during Saint-Germain's residence in Schleswig that he was visited by the renowned Cagliostro, who openly acknowledged him as master, and learned many of his most precious secrets from him, among others, the faculty of discriminating the character by the handwriting, and of fascinating birds, animals and reptiles. To trace the wanderings of Saint-Germain is a difficult task, as he had innumerable aliases, and often totally disappeared for months together. In Venice, he was known as the Count de Balamar, at Pisa as the Chevalier de Schuning, at Milan as the Chevalier Waldon, at Genoa as the Count Soltico, etc. In all these journeys his own personal tastes were quiet and simple, and he manifested more attachment for a pocket copy of Guarini's Pastor Fido, his only library, than for any other object in his possession. On the whole, the Count de Saint-Germain was a man of magnificent attainments, 
but the use he made of his talents proved him to be also a most magnificent humbug. End of chapter 42